So we've got the uh, so we've got I say the point where it's been reached in the story is Joseph's in a household with the the captain of the uh, Egyptian guard Potiphar. Uh, he's uh, in a very successful position, particularly given he's a foreign slave. But then this account comes of this encounter and relationship with um, Potiphar's wife. And uh, when we get to the, the PowerPoint, we're going to look first of all about temptation. And I was looking on the internet uh, for pictures about uh, the temptation that uh, Potiphar had from, uh, that sort of Joseph had rather, from Potiphar's wife. I couldn't really find a very appropriate picture to, to come up because either they were, they were all too like Rubenesque in terms of not very believable or they were way too racy to be putting up on a church service or way, way too raunchy to be putting up a church service. So I couldn't really sort of pitch it quite right in terms of what the, the temptation was. But um, we've got a situation here where um, Potiphar's wife, she might have been the same sort of age as, as Potiphar, who's presumably a bit more senior because he's high ranking. But it could have been that Potiphar had a sort of like, um, I don't know how we'd word it in modern day terminology, but like a sort of trophy, trophy wife, really some sort of young, very attractive uh, wife. It, she, she may have been in that sort of category. Now, one of the Life Builder books that I was looking at when I was studying for this said, uh, one of the questions they got in it was, what do you think it was that attracted uh, Potiphar's wife to the young and handsome Joseph? <laughs> I thought, well, I'm not sure I want to go into this territory. It's a bit like Mrs. Merton, isn't it, asking um, Debbie McGee, what was it that first attracted you to the millionaire Paul Daniels? No, it's, um, so th this is um, a sexual uh, attraction, isn't it? It's a very intense sexual attraction that's being talked about here. And um, the, presumably from the, the point of uh, Potiphar's wife, that's, that's, that's where things are sort of coming from. From Joseph's point of view, that puts him in a very, very difficult position, doesn't it? Because um, there may well have been equally sexual attraction, sexual temptation on his part. But whether this was or not, she is the boss's wife. And uh, if you don't please or if you upset the boss's wife, you're going to end up in serious, serious trouble. And kind of we've had some, some of that type of stuff in the news over the last week, haven't we, in a very different context with Harvey Weinstein and what's gone on in the film world, where people have felt obliged to go along with sexual uh, malpractice, um, sexual abuse, in effect, because they felt they had to because of the power situation that they were in. So this is a very, very tense situation uh, that... Um, that, that Joseph finds himself in. Now, in terms of how we deal with temptation generally, um, I was thinking about this and thinking back to a story that became absolutely um, infamous when I was at the, at the Green, in terms of uh, we had a minister called Michael Collis, and he told a story about temptation that involved a Bedouin tribe and a camel that wanted to get into a tent. And the camel sort of is like, it's like quite cold at night trying to get into this tent. So he says, well, he says to the uh, owner of the tent, can you just uh, let, let, let my nose into the tent? Just, just, just my nose into the tent. 
And uh, I'm not too sure about this, the camel, you know, but they, they let the nose into And then the camel says, well, can you let my nostrils into the tent? Now, I think when Michael Collis told this story, we learned every part of a camel's anatomy from the tip of his nose right to the end tip of his tail. But you get the gist of where the story is going, that by the end of the story, the camel who sort of just started saying, I'll just put my tip of the nose into the tent, is actually fully in the tent and everyone else is, is outside of it. And uh, the idea that sort of once we start to say, oh, welcome in temptation, uh, and actually just start with very small things, accepting very small things, that uh, what will happen, and we might have a picture of a camel in a moment, look, trying to get into a tent, um, that what actually starts to happen then, uh, is that going to work? Yes! <laughs> Here we have the camel trying to get into the tent. What starts to happen is that what we talked about earlier, by, by little degree, by little degree, we get into a position uh, we don't want to, to get into. Uh, or as uh, Tommy Cooper put it sort of very famously in a, one of his uh, sort of very brief jokes where somebody says to him, uh, he goes to a doctor and says, I've had my arm broken in three places. And the doctor says, well, don't go to those places. <laughs> and so that, uh, in a sense, is a, a really important, really profound, actually, le lesson about temptation in terms of putting ourselves or not putting ourselves in the path of temptation. Uh, one of the books I read recently in, in connection with all the essays I was doing said, there is no such thing as a small temptation. There is no such thing as a small temptation. Because what will happen is one thing will lead to another, will lead to another, will lead to another. Now, Joseph, in terms of how he handles temptation, actually does exactly what he should do in terms of handling temptation. He says to uh, Potiphar's wife, who's approaching him, this would be wrong to, to do this. And he explains that time and time again. But there comes a point, and we'll look at this in a bit more detail in just a few moments, but there comes a point where actually explanation isn't, isn't enough, is it? And actually, basically, she makes a grab for him, and then the only thing then that he can do is actually, as the title of this um, message says, to, to make a run for it. Years later, writing to the Corinthian church, uh, the Apostle Paul says the same sort of thing that Joseph actually acts out. He says, flee from, run from, if necessary, sexual immorality. And... He talks about why that's important. He says, all other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually against, it sins against their own body. Don't you know your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. So Joseph brings, I think, that perspective to the situation that he needs to flee from, he needs to run from this temptation, because at the end of the day, that's the only thing that now is going to work, to get himself away from that. He's explained it, he's tried to do everything else he should have done, but now he actually needs to get himself out of the situation. And there may be times, I mean, yeah, 
explain first, that's what we need to do first, say this isn't right. But there may be times where we just can't handle the situation and what we need to do is get out of it. And we need to think about whether, whether there are situations we're in that apply to us in that way. But the perspective here that, that Paul gives is very interesting, isn't it? Because he says that the reason for fleeing sexual immorality is because we're gods, because we're made in the image of God, and because we're worth more than that. And that brings us on, I think, to a second theme, which is about integrity. And this is certainly a situation where Joseph needs to demonstrate very considerable integrity in terms of the way that he's behaving. Now, somebody, it's been attributed to C.S. Lewis, it's been attributed to others, but sometimes integrity is defined as doing the right thing, even if nobody is watching. And uh, Joseph's in a situation here where his boss is, is away. He could, in one sense, he's not being directly watched by his boss. There's none of the other servants in the household at the time. But it's about doing the right thing, even when nobody else is watching. But look again at what Joseph says when he's saying no. <laughs> he says... Um, with me in charge, my master doesn't concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns has been entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? He doesn't say sin against Potiphar. He says sin against God. So he sees life, he sees the situation from God's perspective. This isn't just about how the situation reflects on Joseph, that will reflect on Joseph. It's about how this situation will reflect on his relationship with God and what that says about his God. So he has to live with integrity if he's going to faithfully represent his God. And we'll zip forward in time to where the Apostle Paul, again writing to the Corinthian church, talks about why he wants to live with integrity. Now, Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthians, is really getting slated by the Corinthians. They, uh, he's had to write to them about all sorts of things they're doing wrong. And... Um, they're obviously having a real pop at Paul in terms of his, his, his faith, his integrity. And when Paul writes to them in 2 Corinthians, he says this. He says, um, we are Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. So what he's saying there is if you're a Christian and you're sent by God, you're like an ambassador is, a foreign ambassador going out into a foreign country. So I've put that, that's actually the, the uh, little um, emblem, the icon for the British embassy that's on the screen. So if uh, Her Majesty the Queen sends out somebody to be the ambassador to Australia or the ambassador to uh, Iran or where, wherever they are, the, the, the ambassador is representing the monarch who sent them. 
So if the ambassador is sent out and they start to behave in a totally different way to the values of the country, they're drinking and swearing and um, breaking all the laws, that doesn't represent the Queen, that doesn't represent the monarch who sent them. And so if we go back to our definition of integrity, um, which is about integrity doing the right thing when nobody's watching, well, really more the Christian idea of integrity is about um, we're living, and this doesn't come out very clearly on the screen, but we're living with God watching. We're always living with God watching us because we're in a relationship with God. And we're always wanting to represent him. And that's going to mean living our lives where we're always saying what we're saying and what we're doing and our character all match up with one another. It's not a case of Joseph saying, yeah, I follow God, but actually I can do what I like sexually with Potiphar's wife. All the different things need to line up and all of them need to have integrity. Uh, the book that's on the screen, which isn't quite... Oh, it's clear on the screen. It's, um, but, so it's a book by Jonathan Lamb called Integrity, Leading with God Watching, an excellent book about living with integrity and about how our lives uh, can hold together and um, uh, be it as one. And maybe just one thing about integrity before we move on to looking at trust is that often issues of integrity are shown up in the smallest of our behaviours and the smallest of our actions. Paul had criticised the Corinthian church or, or written to them about um, the Lord's Supper. He'd written to them about their worship. He'd written to them about sexual immorality in the congregation. What do you think it was that upset them the most? What do you think it was that upset them the most? It was, Paul said he was coming to visit us and he changed his plans. That's what upset them. Paul, Paul said he was coming to visit and he changed his plans. So he can't be trusted. The smallest of things, the smallest of things, but actually that's what they latched on to. And that kind of will be the way that the world watches us too. It'll be the smallest of things, the smallest of things sometimes that people will be saying, oh yeah, if you're a Christian, why are you doing that? How does all of this line up in your life? And so Joseph, as I say, would have had, I think, potentially a real challenge, wouldn't he? Do I do the right thing here? when nobody's watching, or do I go along with uh, what Potiphar's wife is, is wanting with all the temptations that that has? So temptation, keep staying, staying away from that, integrity, living a consistent life, even when nobody is watching. But then finally, I think this is a, a story about having trust in God and I find this a, a more painful, difficult in terms of what happens to, to Joseph now. Because he does the right thing. He absolutely does the right thing. And yet, life appears to go disastrously wrong for him because of that. He ends up... Um, being uh, sent from the, the, the palace where he's been at uh, to prison. And if we look at what's the, the account that's been given, 
uh, of what's happened, just, just to see the effect of this. One thing that's repeated, if you noticed, was he left his cloak. Potiphar's wife grabs his cloak, and that's repeated in verse 12, in verse 13, in verse 15. There's, there's one I've missed there, but it's, it's 18. It's five, five places anyway. His cloak is mentioned. He left his cloak. What is it? What, what's one of, the, one of the things, one of the facts we know about Joseph in terms of what, what, what's one of the things he's famous for? His cloak. His cloak, his technical a dream coat. And what's happened to him before in life in terms of things he wore? His brothers have taken his cloak. They've taken his cloak away from him and said, you're like your dead, Joseph. And so now this is history horribly repeating itself in terms of somebody grabbing his cloak that would symbolize his office, his authority, his identity, and taking all of that away. And um, that's, that's a big thing. So that's kind of the, the, the Bible way of putting that in terms of that imagery of Joseph having his identity taken away. But if we think about our own experience, if I think about the experience of some of the people I've met, I've known over a number of years people who have lost their jobs because of false allegations of sexual misconduct, which has taken them years to prove, and what that's been like for them to have to live through that for years. Uh, I've known and worked with people who've lost their careers because of false allegations that have been made against them. This afternoon, I will go to Stafford Prison, God willing, where people, some people will say, we are in prison because of sexual offences that we didn't commit. Some of those are Christian ministers, Christian vicars, church leaders... Now, out of the 700 population at Stafford Prison, I think there's about 100 that maintain their innocence. I strongly suspect not all of those 100 are, in fact, innocent. But say, say there's one. Say there's one who's in prison till 2025 for some sexual offence they didn't commit and what that would be like. And that's the situation that Joseph's in. There is no... One of the, um, residents of the prison was telling me a couple of weeks ago about a court of appeal hearing uh, he got coming up. Well, there's no court of appeal hearing here. Uh, basically, um, that's, that's it, isn't it? So if he, get, he gets thrown into prison, he gets thrown into prison. I was actually wondering why it was that Joseph wasn't actually just put to death. I mean, the Potiphar was actually, among his other duties, he was um, executioner. <laughs> he was the executioner for the, the uh, Egypt. And so that presumably would have looked a real possibility about him being put to death. And the commentary suggests, well, maybe it was that Potiphar's wife wasn't fully believed. Because she's ended up in a bit of a difficult situation, hasn't she? She's grabbed the cloak, which just shows... Clothes don't just fall off, do they? Frankly, clothes just don't fall off. Uh, so she's ended up in a situation where she's got his cloak, he's out of the house, other people come in. 
tricky, awkward situation to explain. She's got, she's got a got to say, hasn't she? Oh, he, he did this. But there's something somehow uh, that sort of stops him being put to death. So come back to the point that Joseph has done all the right things. He's ended up in this awful situation. He's now in prison, indeterminate sentence, no court of appeal, lost everything again by doing the right thing. And so where that, that seems to almost end on an almost hopeless note, except, except, There's a phrase that is repeated through, verse 30, through chapter 39 of Genesis. And it's this. The Lord was with Joseph. So when he arrives in Egypt, it says the Lord, verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. And so what happens is that uh, he is able to... Um, start to work in that household. Now, have a, have a wild guess with me now, having told you that, at what it says, what phrase it uses in verse 3 of chapter 39. Have a, have a wild guess. The Lord was with Joseph. And again, another wild guess. Verse 21, what do you reckon it says about in verse 21 of chapter 39? And in verse 23, what do you reckon it says? <laughs> time and time again, in this apparently seemingly hopeless situation, where Joseph has lost everything again, the Bible says the Lord was with Joseph. 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 And we only understand really this passage if we look at and if we know what's going to be happening next and how the story is going to develop in terms of the way that God is at work in this plan. But I guess one of the things I just want to bring out is that sometimes we don't see at the time where God is leading. We don't see at the time where things are heading. It, we may be in a situation where it looks absolute disaster and where there seems no way out and there seems no hope. But actually, as Christians, we are in a situation where God is on our side and God is with us and God is guiding, even where we have no idea where that guidance is leading and where everything appears to be leading to complete disaster. I won't spoil the story for those that are speaking in future weeks, but Joseph does reach a point later on in the story where he's able to say this in chapter 50, in verse 20, to his brothers. He said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many lives. So without spoiling all of the story, that's what's going to happen, that, that Joseph is going to be used by God in a way where he is being used for the benefit of a lot of people. Or as, as Terry referred to from the New Testament a few weeks back, uh, he said, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, 
who've been called according to his purpose. So a story of real challenge, a very racy, raunchy story, but a story actually that really speaks to us about the reality of temptation and how we deal with that. How in real life, serious real life situations, we need to live with integrity. But how too we need to keep on trusting God, even when the way forward isn't clear. Trusting that his purposes are always best. And that even when we can't see the way ahead, he knows the way ahead and has plans for our lives. So shall we pray. Father God, we thank you for Joseph. We thank you for um, the help that that story gives us, Lord, that account gives us in terms of how we should live and how we should shape our own lives. Lord, we pray for those who are in situations of real challenge in any of those areas, in challenge in terms of temptation, challenges in terms of their integrity, or who face challenges in terms of their trust in you. Lord, may we so live as family that we help and support each other as we seek to live our lives in a way that pleases you and that glorify you. So Lord, we, uh, we give ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.